Welcome to another episode of the Shaken and Stirred Show. I'm Nigel Barker in New York, in Woodstock to be precise, and I'm having a wonderful week. I am, people. You know, I turned 50 recently and I feel like I see the world in a completely different way. The next 50 years are going to be the best 50 years. You know, it is my own half century and, uh, you know, it's, it's, everything is just looking silver right now. And I'm not just talking about my beard because I haven't shaved. Everything, people, is silver. We have an incredible, an incredible guest, as we always do on the Shaken and Stirred show. This is a man who I got to meet just recently. And to say we became fast friends is an understatement. Um, it was over dinner and we're going to get to it. We're going to get to the details. Um, and and, and you know, as in every week on the Shaken and Stirred show, I try to bring you someone different, a unique perspective, someone who's lived a life someone who can tell stories and bring you into their life in a way that will illuminate, you know, what, what other people's lives are truly like. And Brendan Fernandez, who you're about to meet, is extraordinary. Please meet Brendan Fernandez. He's an internationally renowned artist working at the intersection of dance and visual arts. His pro projects address issues of race, queer culture, migration, protest, and other forms of collective movement. He is the recipient of multiple awards and fellowships, and his projects have been shown in the Whitney Biennial, the Guggenheim, the Museum of Modern Art, the Getty Museum, and we first met at the opening of Pop Stars exhibition, where his work is on display currently at 21C Chicago, the Museum Hotel. Brendan Fernandez. Brendan, lovely to have you on. Thank you so much, Nigel. What a beautiful welcome. And again, happy birthday. Um, and to that milestone, uh, to many, many more. So yes, I'm super excited to be here today and to get in it with you and figures and I'll, yeah, everything. I'm excited for everything. I can't wait, I can't wait. You've got a, a map of Africa behind you, which I know we're gonna get to that, but before we go there, and as we always do on the Shaken and Stirred show, we start off with a cocktail. And I saw that you had a shaker in front of you. Now, we most people come with their cocktail pre-made. You're not the first person to make a cocktail on the show, and I love the fact that you are gonna make one for us. So what are you making? Um, I'm going to, in honor of Cinco de Mayo, I'm going to make a Paloma. Um, I love um, a tequila-based drink, and today I'm going to be making it with Casa Dragones. Uh, I love Casa Dragones. I love the brand. I love what they stand for, uh, you know, woman-owned. Um, and so I'm going to make the drink right now, and then we can jump right into it. Very fancy, by the way. Casa, Casa Dragones is one of the more sort of expensive tequilas out there, beautifully packaged. That fantastic blue bottle um, or blue packaging, but the, that lovely clear bottle with a little blue seal, very identifiable, um, and they have a great way of making it. But you have a relationship with them, don't you? Yes, uh, I met uh, the founders in Mexico City. Uh, actually, no, we did a collaboration for Art Basel Miami. Uh, they did a thing called Art Tenders for the um, for the fair, and they asked me to come and make uh, a cocktail for guests in the. Um, in the VIP lounge, and that was kind of where we started our our friendship, and uh, and now you know uh, we just I keep on seeing them everywhere, and I just love it. So um, so they sent me this bottle for us, uh, and a beautiful note as well. Um, so when you say for us, I, I I'm this is I'm we're not actually with each other, so I don't get to have any of the Casa Dragones. It's not I'll, for I'll us. You, I'll tell you how good it is, uh, but you know they little beautiful note that says. Brendan, best of luck with Shaken and Stirred. Uh, we can't wait to see what you uh, create, uh, the Dragonas team. So you've got your Casa Dragonas, you've got your shaker. How much are you putting in there in the Paloma? And by the way, everyone, wh wh why a Paloma? How long have you been drinking a Paloma? Why is a Paloma special for you? Uh, a Paloma is special for me because I think, as I said, I love tequila. Um, I love grapefruit. So it's like fresh, refreshing. It's also an honor for me, hoping that summer comes sooner than later to Chicago. And um, so I'm channeling this energy to bring out summer vibes for us here. So, cause it reminds me of, you know, being on holiday or being in Mexico where I love one of my favorite like countries and definitely a place that I enjoy spending time in. So yes, trying to challenge those experiences but also the, the vibe of the summer season that is coming soon. Can't, can't, no, exactly. None of us can wait for that. And, you know, and for those of you who don't know, which the, these days are not many, and go ahead and make your cocktail, um, it, it is the fact that the Paloma is the most popular tequila-based cocktail 
in the world now. It, for the longest time, it was the most popular cocktail in uh, Mexico, where people actually don't really drink margaritas. They, they you know, mar margaritas are very popular in, uh, you know, north of the border. Now you're pouring in fresh, fresh grapefruit juice. Fresh grapefruit juice. I put in uh, 300 millimeters, uh, not millimeters, milliliters. Milliliters. And, and then I'm going to put some, um, just a little splash of uh, lime juice. And that's about it. And I'm going to shake it. And then I'm going to share it with you, Nigel. <laughs> so you're not putting in any agave? Uh, no, I already did. Um, that was um, the, I put the tequila and then I put in, mixed in with the lime juice with the agave. Mixed in, in there was the agave. And no, nothing sparkling, no sparkling water, no soda water. I'm not into it, the sparkling. So I know that norm, normal Paloma has, um, you know, um, sparkling water. I like it to be just the pure grapefruit juice. So in fact, the traditional Paloma from Mexico is in fact lime juice, grapefruit soda, and tequila. A tequila blanco like you had, but it's actually made with a grapefruit soda. They do not use fresh grapefruit juice. It's a real simple it's, cocktail. It's one of those cocktails which you can basically make it in the glass, actually. Um, and you, so you don't even need a cocktail shaker. And you, you, you put the ingredients straight in the glass, you pour the soda water on it, you give it a stir and you're off to the races. But we've made it very fancy, especially when you're talking to artists in Chicago and they're using freshly squeezed grapefruit juice, lime juice with the agave already added and Casa Dragones, which was sent to them directly from Dragones themselves. Um, yes, so people, there are different ways to do this. And just on top of that, the name Paloma means dove. A uh, beautiful name, a new beautiful word in Spanish, and, and sort of defines this drink because it is, it will give you wings. It, it is divine, and I agree. And I made something to go along with you because I know you're okay. a tequila man. And when we first met, we had at Lure Bar tequila drinks. And here we are. Lure Bar, by the way, is the, the, the restaurant alongside 21C Chicago where we met. Cheers. This is called Cheers. Love on the Beach. Ooh. And it is a twist on the tequila drink. I use Lost Sunday's Reposado, use two ounces of that. It's with Aperol, which I use an ounce of Aperol, which is the Aperitivo Bitter, um, with half an ounce of fresh lime juice, a splash of agave, shaken, put into a glass with ice. Then I used club soda to top it up, to give it the sparkle. And it's got two wedges of grapefruit on either side. And believe me, forget about sex on the beach. This is love on the beach. Cheers, that. Brendan. Cheers, cheers, cheers. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Fantastic. Well, let's get straight to it. You're going Indian, born in Kenya, from Canada, and living in Chicago. You are yourself a cocktail. You're, you're quite the mix. You've got all sorts of things going on. You're, I would sort of looking at that would wonder if you're either a spy or running away from something. But before we get to it, tell us about your childhood. Take us back a little bit. All that is true. Uh, my family is Kenyan uh, Indian. We're fifth generation born in Kenya. And, um, you know, my family emigrated to Canada in 1989. Um, and then I, I lived in the suburbs of Toronto. Um, and that's kind of where I started to dance was in my childhood in Toronto. Um, but my family, you know, we, we definitely um, identify with our, our Indian Goan heritage, so specifically Goan. So Goa was a, a colony of the Portuguese. And so my last name, Fernandez, comes from that, um, that region. Uh, it's, a, it's an area uh, on the coast that is also uh, a Catholic region. It's one of the only Catholic regions of, the, of India. Um, but my family had never been there. You know, like uh, we were brought up and raised in East Africa. So I definitely also identify a lot with, with the continent, but specifically um, Kenya. Uh, my father was um, worked in the safari industry. He worked, uh, so I spent a lot of time in the bush. Um, and so like that was a very, you know, ex ex a very important experience of my upbringing, um, like living in, Ke living in Kenya. And then uh, in Canada, my family uh, lived in the suburbs of Toronto and I um, found dance. Um, I always was a creative. I always was really interested in, you know, like I was always drawing. I was always like making things with like, you know, like 
toothpicks and hot glue guns and like kind of playing around, but I also loved to dance. You know, I, was, I had a lot of energy. And so dance became something that was an outlet. It gave me community. And, um, you know, I kind of really pursued it. I think my, my parents were kind of like, what are you doing? <laughs> like we brought you to Canada and this is not the career we necessarily wanted you to take on. Like, you know, they, it's the kind of the typical immigrant story. Your child should be a doctor or your child should be a lawyer. Um, I'm scared of blood. Uh, I pass out right away. So it's not, not the good, would not have been a good feel for me. Uh, law was not part of anything I thought about. I just thought about dancing and making art. You know, my mom did say, if you don't become a doctor or a lawyer, maybe you would consider being a priest. <laughs> well, well, there you go. But you, you, so you talk about art, but then you talk about dance. And, and I think that for a lot of people, they don't always connect those two dots. I mean, not to say that people don't go to a ballet or, or watch people dance and think of it as an art form, but you've taken art, you've taken dance and you present it as art, as literally art, as we mentioned at the beginning, that is displayed in projects at the Whitney, at the Guggenheim, at the Museum of Modern Art. We're not talking necessarily classical dance as in, well, I'm going to go watch the ballet now. So, and I want to get to that, but going back still, because I think this, what's so interesting about your career, and, and I, I, you know, have got a lot of friends who are artists, a lot of friends in the artist community, but I know very few that have chosen dance as their medium, you know, in, in order to communicate. And, and, I, and I think it's absolutely fascinating and I want to dive into it. But you, first of all, as a, as a person, being of Indian descent, and you just sort of alluded to it, that your parents expected you to perhaps become a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer or a very traditional and i'll say this and folks because i'm part sri lankan um, and have a similar heritage i can get away with this you know be a good indian boy and grow up and do your, your you know and get a good get a, get a good job and make money for the family right which is how i was also by the way as a photographer that was not a career my parents wanted me to be a lawyer and then become a doctor and i actually went i was you know headed to medical school so i had the very and then i went off to become a model and a, and a photographer so it's similar but different you know and, and i understand that cultural difference but dance as well and ballet was there pushback from your parents or, or the indian community in canada as you got involved with dance i think in the beginning when it was more like recreation and it was like something for me to keep me occupied and to be physical it was like sure it was definitely like certain moments of like you know well you're a boy and boys don't dance and i have to be honest like you know for me also you know, I did it, I loved it, but I didn't tell people um, because I didn't want to be like ashamed or like made fun of by other people at school. So it was something that I did, but I kind of kept it to myself. But it was then, you know, and I would go to, to the dance studio and work with other dancers and we had that community. So it was almost like a safe space. But then eventually when it started becoming more serious, like when I was like, you know, um, applying for college and I was like making dance and visual arts my major, my family were kind of like, okay, well, what are you going to do now? Like, you can't do this as a career. And I was like, I am, I will do it as a career. And they were like, and you know, and I think I had dreams and aspirations to be in a, in a ballet company, you know, or to dance with a, with a modern dance company. Um, and then there was pushback because there's then, you know, the art world or the art, you know, yeah, the art world was saying like, you can't do both dance and visual arts. And the same was the dance world. They're like, you, you have to pick one or the other. They're both very rigorous, you know, careers that you need the time, especially with dance. Like physically, when I was training, we were like in class, like, you know, like, you know, 18 to 25 hours a week. So I think for my parents, it became more of a thing of like, what are you gonna do if you do a degree and major in this? You know, you have to do something different. But I just kept on pushing. I, I don't know, I keep on saying I had chutzpah, that, you know, this kind of chutzpah, that I just kept on like, I was like, I had this drive. And when I was doing, um, you know, like, you know, applying for schools for, for dance and visual arts, like they'd never seen a double major in both of these, these fields. They were like, you know, we don't even have it. You're kind of making it up as you go along. Um, and I somehow found a way to have, you know, do all the dance classes, the technique classes, and then also follow through with all my studio uh, making classes. So they were very separate in the beginning. And I think that as I continued and I started to progress, you know, in 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 what I was doing, I, and I kind of didn't know what I was gonna, what I was actually really doing. Like, and I also told my parents, like, I'll become a teacher. Like, I'll go to, I'll become a high school teacher. So again, something stable for them. And you know, um, I got injured in my senior year, 
and um, and I just sort of like was then like just kind of felt betrayed. Um, what happened? What kind of injury? Um, I, I injured my hamstring. Um, I kind of like tore my hamstring. Not, not kind of. I did. Um, and so it was just you know like a thing where I felt sort of betrayed by you know all the dedication, the work that I put into it. I felt kind of like you know now I'm just I'm learning how to like do this all what, over. What again. happened? Did you was it a were you jumping? Was it a certain dance, or you just hadn't warmed up, or what had happened? Um, I think it's I just in in like by nature my hamstrings are very short and tight. And I was dancing um, and training at the time in Graham technique. So Martha Graham, uh, you know, the matriarch of modern dance, the, the alternative to ballet, um, you know, everyone was like ballet is so rigid and strict and it is, but there was in, in, the, in, the, in the 60s, Graham created her own technique, which was sort of like the op in opposition of ballet. Like you take off your shoes and you dance in a parallel position. And if you have long hair, you would let your hair down. Um, but within that idea of having an alternative, there still wasn't a freedom in it. Graham technique is very rigorous. And a lot of the positions are like on the floor, like in these kind of like in a, in a split position. And I think just that over use of my hamstrings that were already like tight, they just kind of, you know, one gave up. And um, the sort and, of know, irony I, there, you know, that you gave up ballet to be sort of to be almost rebellious in, in another form. And yet the rigors of that actually caused you to sort of have an accident, which is in itself unfortunate. And no, and it's funny because everyone always was like, it was ballet that did this to you. And I was like, no, it was modern dance, you know. Um, and ballet was also still super rigorous. And, you know, and I think I was pushing and pushing to find ways to to make a mark and to make it successful for me, because in ballet, the ballet world was like, you know, you're good as a young boy, but as you were growing up, you know, you're, you're, you're too small. We expected you to be taller. We expected you to have um, a different physicality. One of the things that they hated about, my, about me physically was my feet. And specifically my feet, because um, in ballet, you should have like, you know, short feet with, with, with a really uh, um, deep arch, a deep arch. Um, and I have very long feet. So when I point my toes, it doesn't give a beautiful arch. And, um, and so there was always like, you know, my feet were never like, were considered quote unquote beautiful. And so, and, and, when, and, wow. and, and having an arch isn't about, you know, strength or fortitude. It's just about an aesthetic. Someone has created a, a beautiful foot is what is seen as being, you know, beautiful in this, in this, in this, um, in this art form. And ballet began as a way to bow to Louis XIV. So in the court of Louis XIV, he choreographed his court. So when they saw him, they give their body, you know, like he's kind of like present yourself. So the foot almost was a way of presenting the foot to the king, which then got more aestheticized to becoming like, you know, this, this arched foot. And there so, weren't also uh, any, any Indians, any Indian boys in the Louis's no, court either. No, 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 definitely not. But like, that was also something I was, I was struggling with was, you know, was the idea of race in ballet. You know, it's mm -hmm. a very white field. And I was told like, you know, if you do make it in this, this field, you know, you'll never dance principal roles because for example, Romeo's not a brown boy. And these are things, so, you know, I was pushing through. Did someone actually told you that? So actually, you were actually told that? Yes. Wow. So you're pushing through, and that's what I do in my work is to kind of challenge these narratives, to break down these binaries, to make a space for inclusivity, but also to challenge the way that we're thinking about these histories and how we then perform them now. So, you know, going then, uh, I was pushing through ballet and then ballet was kind of like, okay, we need to, you need to probably like, it just wasn't working. So then I went to modern dance because that felt like the alternative and then I got injured. So I, once the injury happened, I kind of felt full on like, you know, like that I had been betrayed by this, by dance. And then I, you know, I, what I did was I, I applied for a master's degree. I first took a year off, worked a job in the city, um, Toronto and hated it. Um, in my head, I was like, I never want to work a nine to five. I know that sounds very privileged, but I was like, I just was like not in it. I was, I was an administrator in, a, in a, at the, my alma mater's um, at the university. I was working as an administrator, like just doing like office work and I hated it. And I remember saying to myself, I am going to apply for school, do a master's um, in visual arts. Um, and then I was like, you know, I'm going to figure the next thing out. And my parents were kind of like, again, always supportive, but also I think as immigrants being sort of like worried about what would be the next thing for me, because they wanted to become of you. 
they, you know, stability is such an important thing for them. And especially because they, they sacrificed and moved, you know, in their like early, like, like late thirties, early forties to come to Canada to give us, you know, this opportunity. So I went, I applied to a bunch of schools. I got in and I, I but I was only studying visual arts here. So, and I kind of stopped talking about dance um, for, for the two years of my master's. I really focused on the colonial history of my family and the ways the trajectories of movement have like affected us through India, through Goa, through Portugal, through, you know, um, you know, Kenya to Canada. So looking at the, that narrative of my ancestors and who we are and what we were kind of like trying to, um, you know, how do we try to identify what is an authentic self? After my master's program, I heard about this school uh, or program in New York called the Whitney Independent Study Program. Right. And I was like, I want to go there. And I remember in the ninth grade in high school, going to New York on a school field trip, we had our art program at the, in my high school was, was really rigorous. And, you know, we all fundraised and we went for like, I think probably a week over like spring break to New York. And I remember like standing in the Guggenheim being like, this place is amazing. And I was like, I want to live here and I want to have a show here at some point in my life. And again, you know, dreams, wishful thinking, I have no idea. But after my master's, I applied for the Whitney program and I was accepted, you know, full like, story. Like um, when you go, when you, when you are shortlisted for the Whitney program, you have to um, fly in for an interview and I had no money. And so I remember calling my mom and I said, Hey, um, I got shortlisted for this, uh, for the Whitney independent study program. I need to be in New York to, to do the interview. And she was like, okay. And my mom also, you know, was working, you know, she worked, um, she worked, you know, didn't have a ton of money. And she was like, I'll give you some of my air miles and we'll fly you down. And I was like, great. And I remember I got to New York. I stayed at a friend's loft in like Bed-Stuy. And, you know, I think my friend's loft was like, it was so, it was so interesting. It was, I was like this loft with like eight people living in here. This is amazing. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh my God. But we ended up, I ended up going for the interview. And I don't know, in the interview, something like kind of like a little light bulb went off and I was like, oh my God, your mother thinks you're going for a job interview. Like I didn't, cause I didn't really fully explain to her anything. I didn't tell her like, I'm going to this like, you know, school program for the, for another like, you know, thing. Um, and she was, and so I would go into the interview. I totally feel like I bombed it. It was so intimidating. And I just was like, I also remember like leaving my friend's house in Bed-Stuy, going to, uh, like to Soho, getting changed in, because it was really hot and I didn't want to be like all sweaty. So I'm going and getting changed in a Starbucks bathroom. Wow. In, like, I think there's one on Prince Street or something. I think it's still there. It's near the sure. Balthazar. And then I walked to the Whitney, which was on Lafayette and uh, Walker and did the interview, felt like I totally bombed it and was like, well, you know what? You, know what? you just, just get, you go back home, you'll figure out the next thing. And um, when I checked my email on the way to the airport, like, they wrote me and they said you're in so this, that the, quickly that quickly that they, quickly like I was what like, was it do you think about your your interview I mean obviously you thought you bombed it but what were you presenting at that point what was it that you were trying to do with them um you mean like in terms of like um like what I was presenting my work my the style of art was it was it were you was it dance dance as art then no right it was just tr more traditional style yeah, of art. like sculpture and i was doing a lot of work about the history of african masks sold as souvenirs versus masks being you know on display as artifact and cultural object in your work is interesting because you have things like this your your masks that you get into and i saw at 21c chicago in the pop stars exhibition you have an nft that uses masks in the actual nft and i'd love to talk to you about nfts as well soon but you know you, you also have you know you have sculptures you've created furniture you have but dance is, is a major part of it and I, you know, and I've looked at your art extensively and, you know, it's both live performance for people to witness, but it's also video and, and shot. So recorded and edited and produced, but using dance. Uh, and, you know, at what point did you sort of, was it, did you, is there somebody else who you were studying that had done something similar? At what point did you think I'm going to use people to create a dance to say something politically or, or, or to say something that is important to me that can be is, is basically a, an art form 
to, to, to say, I mean, most people don't think of dance as political or, or don't think of using dance to, to make a statement in that sort of way. No, for sure. And I think that's where my work somewhat is unique, but I also, the, the history of, of dance collaborating with visual arts has there's been like a, a legacy, you know, people like even like John Cage or Merce Cunningham um, and Ro Robert Rauschenberg, like they all make collaborations. And so I think that's where it stems. And then like to maybe go a little bit further, like growing up in Toronto, when I was dancing, you know, I was also very invested in punk rock culture. Um, and, you know, I, I think someone quoted one saying that I'm a, a, a queer um, punk rock ballerina. Uh, and I, I love that kind of moniker because that is basically who I am. But like my politics and my social consciousness comes from like punk rock music. So I think like when I moved to New York to do the program, I was still very much like, you know, I think there was a trauma. I think uh, there was a, a, an idea that I couldn't talk about dance anymore. Like maybe because partially because I failed because I didn't get into a company, but there was this kind of failure that my body failed. And I was you know, still kind of dealing with this, um, this kind of like, you know, trauma. And so I think when I moved to New York, um, you know, I started to see dance again, like in the city and the history of Judson Church, you know, is this kind of experimental um, history of, of dance in, you know, in New York that was playing with like, you know, sculpture and dance. And so that there was, the, there was that kind of collaboration, not to the extent that I have pushed it. Cause like, you know, it was always in a theater. It was always, you know, I'm trying to break those sort of social etiquettes of what dance is. And um, so that was one thing that was really important for me thinking about dance. Um, I was also, when I was in the Whitney, Yvonne Rayner was one of our, our mentors and, you know, Yvonne's work has always been so interesting to me and just like, like learning from her, I started to see more dance and thinking about dance in a political way. And then of course, you know, for me, the, the club, the, the nightclub, you know, going to the club and dancing um, in the, the gay bar or the queer space, you know, like to kind of find community. And I was like, this well, is- What does that dance floor mean to you when you go to the club and you see that, and, you know, that's do you see statements being made on the dance floor? I think so. For me, it was a place of, of gathering. People like me to come together. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense of also like expression. There's a freedom within it. You know, on that dance floor, like I'll dance how I want to dance. And within that space, like there's a freedom of, of just like letting your body go, you know, like, and I think that was something different from like, you know, just the technical dance of ballet or modern dance. Like there's only one way to do it. Here you can just express yourself and, um, and be you. And I think something for me was like, you know, when I'm on a dance floor and I'm dancing, I could be, everybody could be watching me uh, because sometimes it's a little bit spect like spectacle uh, for better or for worse. Um, but I think that, you know, I don't see anybody watching me. I'm in that space by myself and I, you know, um, and then I can break out of that and then go and be with others. But it's something that's really like, you know, for me, it was, a, it was an amazing thing to go to. And then I, that's when I started to like go to the Vogue ball scenes and learn about that community. And, you know, you know, I, I was never a Vogue, but I, I, I knew people in that community. And I was just like so taken by this idea of, of dance bringing people together and to find some kind of solidarity within this group. I mean, dance is something which no matter what culture, it's everywhere. It's all it's it's an, you know, from you know, indigenous people to you know, tribes in Africa to Elizabethan England to you know medieval cultures to you know, you name it all the way through to as you're saying, you know, talking about voguing and things like that, it's down to the sort of small little thing, moments in time. You know, it's it's both these big cultures, big historical moments down to punk rock dance, mod dance, skinheads dance, you know, rockers dance. This every little moment in fashion history and in, in popular culture, there's dance associated with them and how they do it, right? And and there's sort of stories being told within the dance, right? Because of what it means and totally. And I think one when you when you were saying that. It made me rem it remind me of like when my family gathers, like you know, for Christmas or for any sort of holiday, Thanksgiving. It always ended up with us all dancing, you know, like that was something that. So there was also the social part of like you know community within our family. Like you know, uh, we might not be the best communicators, but we would communicate and show our our intimacy, our connection to each other through moving with each other. You know, like it's it's a really 
beautiful thing. And I think that's partially with my practice, you know, as I bring bodies together, I bring them in, in terms of trained dancers that are like physically holding and touching, um, or I do things where <clears throat> I ask the public to come and I create as, you know, political space um, gatherings of dance, which could be seen as another form of protest. Cause you know, when you see protests as being like one thing where we go to the streets with, with placards and we, 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 we express our, our being seen in, in critical mass, but we're also expressing like through like being vocalizing. But if I'm just bringing people together to dance, that is another form of solidarity. We're bringing, you know, a community to gather to, to make a statement. And so I've done pieces in the past where, you know, I've, you know, just said, I'm throwing a party in, in the streets and people will come. And I, now there's always a bit of a twist. I'm thinking specifically a piece of mine called on flashing lights where I hired um, 24 police cars or cars from a movie um, um, from a movie um, set, and we like created like this kind of like barricade of cars, um, and then wow. they, they all had sirens, um, just the lights of the flashes, and that the, the police sirens became um, the the animation for the party for the disco, and so we were dancing in critical mass on the streets with DJs uh, who identified as POCs uh, and queers. And we just kind of created a party, but then there's this kind of tension because you're like, well, I'm dancing and celebrating, but then we're dancing to the lights of police sirens. And so, so those are the sort of things that I'll do to kind of intervene and to make dance political or to make a statement there. Talk to me about Freefall, which you did in response to the tragic 2016 shooting at Pulse, the nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Yeah. Um, uh, Freefall 49 uh, was the piece where, um, you know, so I've been talking a little bit about, you know, the nightclub as a space of freedom, of sanctuary for gathering community. Um, Pulse Orlando was a huge hit to so many, um, you know, 49 people died, 49 queer POCs died, many others got injured. But for me, it was a shock because I was like, our space isn't safe. Our space is still, we still have work to do to kind of create this kind of safe zone or this idea that, you know, we've gained our civil rights. You know, somebody went into that space, infiltrated the space and attacked a community, my community. And so I was really taken by this. Um, strangely and weirdly enough, I had a couple months before Pulse, I was at the ballet and um, um, ABT in New York and a dear friend of mine, um, Lauren Post, fell um, and um, in a performance and got seriously injured. And so I was sort of just, and someone in the back, the whole audience gasped, but then someone said, man down or something. And I was like, what, what? And I was more concerned about my friend on the ground. And, and I just, that was sort of resonating. So I, I don't know why, but I was, I, I, I was in Vancouver and I was working on a piece uh, with a, a dancer named Rachel Myers, uh, formerly from Ballet BC. And I was just, choreographing her how to fall. And I don't know why, but I was just was like kind of choreographing. I was like, you know, how do you fall? Because if you fall in a dance performance like on stage, it's always like spectacle. It's like, you know, but I was like, I just want you to fall, but I don't want you to get hurt. So we're just trying to find ways. And then I started playing this game of call and response where I'd be like, dance, fall, dance, fall, dance, fall. So it just kind of became this thing. And then, and I started to like learn, like, you know, we kind of created this like choreography of like you crumble your body, you kind of, and then you can fall without hurting your body, but you can make a sound so it feels dramatic. And I didn't know what was, this was going to be. I just was thinking, you know, sometimes I just do things and I'm like, something will come about. Then when, when free fall, uh, sorry, when Pulse Orlando happened, I was like 49 people fell. And I always think a lot about the dance for a game, you know, as a space of freedom and sanctuary, but also as a space of resistance. Uh, political resistance, but also, you know, when I'm working with my dancers, we always ask, what is the floor made out of? You know, this architectural device that supports the body in um, its verticality also does something different to the body when it's when it's horizontal, when it's fallen. And, you know, when I work with my dancers, we always talk about, like, what is it made out of? Because after we labor on the dance floor, um, you know, the residue of that floor carries into your bodies. You know, it's in your joints, it's in your muscles, you kind of have that pain. And so I was thinking about 49 people that danced in that club, went there for a sense of freedom to find sanctuary, but then didn't check out of the club. Mm -hmm. So Freefall became a dance party. It debuted at the Getty in Los Angeles. And I had a number of dancers all standing on pedestals. A DJ, um, uh, a dear friend of mine for this performance called How to Dress Well, 
performing and I, we created a sound cue. So uh, when the sound cue went off, it gave this kind of like kind of pulsation and then it kind of like crashed and that gave made the dancers almost fall and then they all fell. And then we turn off the music and we turn off the lights. And it was this kind of moment of like shock within stillness. And the first time it happened, like the audience who was kind of all about in the space started to clap, but then how to dress well and I would bring the music back up again and then the dancers would stand up and then start to dance again. And we did that 49 times to acknowledge uh, in honor of the 49 that fell. But then we also, um, you know, it's, it's not about like a defeat. It's also about this notion of to stand up again, you know, to, to stand and to move forward, to find space within it. So we had like a count uh, up that gave the dancers a sense of like knowing how many more falls they do. And it's a hard piece emotionally, but also physically, it's, it's really difficult because you have 49 falls. So your body has to endure that and deliver that. But then there's also this idea that, you know, we stand up 49 times as well. And eventually the audience in this particular, um, and it's happened a couple of times, they started to fall with us. So everybody was falling. And, at, you know, at around 48, 49, we were all just like sort of like laying on the floor together in this like weird moment of like solidarity. Um, but then we all stood up again together. So there was this, this kind of like beautiful celebration. And at 49, like when 49 happens, we all fall. We stay there for like a little bit longer. And then the music just kind of goes full on and everybody just starts jumping. I start crying always. Um, you know, it's, it's in an emotional space, but, uh, you know, free fall 49, that's free fall 49. But for me, it's a piece that really um, showcases, you know, this idea of gathering to find solidarity, to support each other. Um, I'm actually going to perform it this August at the Mass Mocha in uh, North Adams, Massachusetts uh, on August the 18th. So hopefully you can make it up that way. Amazing. You know, I think what, something that a lot of people would probably wonder about is, you know, whereas perhaps a sculpture or a painting or sort of a traditional piece of art, one can sell and sell on again and again and again, you know, when you're doing a performance, it is just that it's it's sort of one and done type of thing and yes you can book you be booked again to do it but as far as it being a piece of art it's a very different medium right it's not the same type of thing but i mean obviously if you make a film out of it you could potentially sell the rights to that film or to or play it again but you know is that something that crosses your mind when you do these things or it doesn't matter or how how is it how do you, how does one deal with that in the art world? How do you communicate that and, and, and deal with galleries when it comes to a piece of art that they can't really sell? Sure, um, definitely. So like, and again, so the ephemeralness of my work is definitely there. Um, but I, as you mentioned, like, you know, I make photographs, I make uh, prints, I make furniture. A lot of the furniture are objects that the dancers use within a performance score. And so scores are also important. So like within that kind of history or legacy of Judson Church, the idea that we don't have a language for dance, but I write these kind of poetic, um, um, abstract, but sometimes not abstract or very graphic kind of like ideas of what the dance can be. And so that can be also something that um, can be acquired. And I think that, you know, thinking about, you know, dance as being collected, you know, we're still pushing ways that that is, but if you buy our museum or institution buys a piece, you know, you get the, the score, you get video documentation and then the, the kind of the idea of like how do we perform it so it, there is ways but also like with the, the dances that come with like furniture those objects are also then put into the the mix as well so i'm really curious a lot about like devices i call them my devices like I'm like working with furniture designers to kind of create objects that um can be can instill movement uh, or or support movement or sometimes even like um burden movement you know one of the, the pieces that you have on display at 21C Chicago at the Pop Stars exhibition is this neon mask that blinks. And you may think as you walk by it that it's sort of faulty or something. Like if you weren't, if you didn't know, you'd look at it and you'd be like, it's one of those blinking lights, like, you know, in a poor part of town where the neon's not quite working and it's sort of flickering on and off. But it is, in fact, um, to those of you in the know, it's a sort of the layman's ignorance. Like, like everyone in the art world's rolling their eyes when I say that. But you know, because how would it be broken? But it, but it could have that effect. But it, but actually, it's it's giving a message, isn't it? It's it's uh, it's using Morse code. If if I'm wrong. 
Mm -hmm. Also, I just love that you use the word faulty. So that was that, that's why I was laughing because that's like a very British saying and reminds me of my family. But yeah, no. So these masks were based on masks that were being sold on Canal Street in New York, and then how their counterpart, um, the the original or the real one, is in on display at the Metropolitan, and so. Most African masks don't have artists named to them. When you look at the provenance reports, there's always, you know, lots of missing information, but always the identity of the artist is always uh, deemed as unknown. Um, there's a couple of objects in the Met collection and the artist has been identified, but Western historians have given this identity to this, this maker. And the identity is known as the master of Bouli. And so these objects are, I'm playing with this idea again of like, you know, you know, questioning my sense of self of like, who am I? But who is the master of Bully? So in this faulty kind of flashing, um, they are, they're, they're saying things in Morse code, like, where is the master of Bully? Who is the master of Bully? I am the master of Bully. So they're asking these kind of like questions or, or, or bringing or taking on statements. And that kind of like strange pulsation that, you know, can mean many things, you know, like, when in masquerade, uh, and, and again, all masks in African, West African tradition specifically, when you put on the mask, you dance them. So they all came with dances. But when we took them in out of their place of context and put them in the museum, we removed the body. So there's, there's almost like this like call as well that for longing to find the body that once supported it, whether that means to return home. And so I'm playing with that idea. It's also like the flashing could be like almost like a spiritual takeover. Like it's quite like rigorous and rapid, you know, in the, in the, in its, in its pulsation. So I'm playing with that as well, that this Morse, and you know, Morse code is, is not necessarily, um, you know, it's obsolete. It's a language you don't even use. So you don't know what it's saying to you, but you know, it's saying something and you gravitate to it. And when I had the original show in 2010, I'm not sure if that's uh, accurate. Um, it was in a space in um, New York uh, on Walker um, uh, called Art in General. And we had the masks in the windows and they were just like pulsing. And it was interesting because like the, the, the pulses would, would carry throughout the city. You'd see it in another window in a reflection or one time it snowed and the whole snow just became this like glowing, like, like flashes. But people would come in and be like, what is this place? So the flashes were calling people. And I really thought that was interesting that, you know, it brought people into the space. No one's had an epileptic fit or anything at the flashing light. Not that you thank know. Thank God, of. no. Thank God, no. <laughs> I think we've had to put signs up in certain museums just in terms of like legalities, you know, just be like, this is, yeah. People flashing, flashing lights going off in this in this room. Be careful if you're sensitive. No, I love it. You know, you you also have a, an NFT at the 21C Chicago and you're, and you've sort of, you're in that world as well. NFTs are something which are, very new in the art world and and certainly difficult for people to sort of get involved with because of the the requirement of having a, a wallet in you know and then having ethereum and and all this sort of stuff does that stuff bother you in the art world that it's so it is not so easy for people to, to be a part of it or and, and what's your reason for getting involved in nft world as well sure um and so the, the project that is at um at 21c it's, it's a counterpart to the neon. So the neons were the original. And I made those in 2010, as I said, kind of, I'm not really sure exactly the accurate date, but I think that I was still thinking about this idea of like the mask as something that's commodified, the mask that becomes a souvenir. So this, the, that project is called Souvenir and it's like a return to this, those, those objects and the kind of same questions I was asking about, you know, their cultural value, their, their capital value. Um, and so NFTs were something that I was really curious about because, you know, everyone was like, a lot of people were saying to me, like, you make ephemeral work, you can find a way through your ephemeral work to kind of commodify it in a way through, through this, this, this NFT process. And I started doing a lot of research. I started thinking a lot about what this all means. Uh, I'm still learning. It's still an experimental phase, but I was like thinking about, um, also the structure that you know I can like take uh, a moment of dance and create an NFT uh, or work within strategy like you know um, with souvenir it's an algorithm that's taking different attributes to kind of create a mask um, and so certain attributes are more rare so when you buy or sorry mint the NFT you don't know what you're going to get so you it's almost like like baseball cards or something you get you might get a super rare one or you might get one that is 
you know, like just like kind of mediocre in the sense of like the attributes. So they all are very aesthetic and beautiful, um, but they are, you're, you don't know what you're gonna get. So you can, so then within the secondary market, you know, if you have a super rare one, you could sell it for more than another one. And so within this paying structure or within smart contracts, why I really wanted to kind of investigate um, NFTs is that, you know, you, me as the artist will always get paid, but within my smart contract, I'm also always paying the dancer as well. So that whoever, you know, as it gets, as it moves and transforms or becomes, or transforms to like different people's hands, you know, we are also still being supported and, and are, are, in, are visible in that um, paying structure. Where in the art world, once I sell something, you know, it doesn't, nothing, it's, it's out, it's, it belongs to somebody else. And so I really thought that was an interesting way to kind of like challenge and change the ways that, um, you know, capital is sort of like directing, um, you know, artists like well-beings. And for me, it's really important within my work, my work is living. I'm always working with other people and that's their livelihood. That's, you know, like when I, when dancers move, we look effortless, but it's, it's hard work. And so I really want to acknowledge that work and then to find ways to kind of continue to pay. And with Souvenir, 10% uh, of the, the revenues go to a dancer fund where eventually I want to kind of create a dance foundation to um, change, um, you know, dancers' lives through paying for their medical bills or helping them pay for residencies or helping them pay for rent. You know, like, you know, dancers work super hard, but the, the and if, even if you're a company, sometimes it's not, it's never that easy as well. What do you think of the art world? When I, and what I mean by that is, is that it's, you know, you, you're sort of talking about it now as if they're and, and mentioning how, you know, your art gets sold once and you don't make money again. And it is a business where in some of the most money on the planet has been made out of the art industry, out of the art world. You know, the people have purchased art and a few years later it goes for a hundred times, if not more, the value. And, you know, the artist doesn't see any of it. It can be a very snooty world. It can be a world where, you know, for the average person, they can be intimidated by the art world or, you know, feel that they're not welcome or perhaps they are ignorant of what it should mean, you know, versus what they think it means when they look at a piece. And, 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 and you know, and there, there is a, 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 you know, a, a certain type of um, person perhaps, which is very much drawn to the art world itself. That's not to say that the average people or people like myself can't just enjoy art. But, you know, I'm interested to hear your take as someone who is so such a rebel in the space. Um, what do you think of the art world, you know, in general? Yeah, I, well, you know, one thing is like I'm in it. And so uh, I, I and I can't like I'm an artist. There's nothing other, I can't do anything else. You know, I'm, I'm tied to it. But within it, I definitely have, you know, critique. And for me, it's to find change from within. So um, my work is is doing that, I think, and I hope. But also, like, I think within the art world, there's different tiers of how we 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 maneuver or um, manifest within it. You know, like there's the commercial art world, you know, which is always kind of complicated because it's again it's cultural uh, and capitally driven. And so I think there's something about that where you know sometimes like you know I might I might need a break from that kind of thing. You know, like I'll go to an art fair like Art Basel and have a great time, but afterwards I'm like, okay, I got to come home and decompress. And also to remember that within it, like my role is to make work and I need to make smart conceptual work that is rigorous, that challenges people, which is not always the case. People sometimes just want the quick, easy something. But I think that that's the change from within the system that I'm, I'm bringing. Like, I really think that that's something that I really want to kind of think about. But again, like I'm in it, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm participating. I'm, I'm, you know, always doing something in the art world, but I think within it, I'm being self-conscious and then kind of giving the, the message and supporting the message that, you know, that, you know, it's about art first. So, you know, you've done collaborations with, you know, various different groups and, and people and companies and businesses. And, you know, you have one at the moment with Tiffany's, for example, and um, that's a very commercial business. And clearly, um, nothing wrong with that at all. And then it's a fabulous company. But when you're doing something like that, how does it change what you're doing? Are, are the pieces that you're doing with them, is that is it different than you would do otherwise? And 
Uh, with them, it's not like a collaboration of, of making things together. It's more like they'll support endeavors and things that I do, like if I'm doing events and things like that. Um, but like I, for me, it is also something that I'm very conscious about. It's like, you know, I needed to make sure that everything was ethical and felt within my social political consciousness and thoughts. Um, and the company is so supportive. They have, you know, the Tiffany, the Louis Tiffany Comfort um, um, you know, artist awards. So they're, they're, they are supporting. And I think that's, so for me, um, that's one way to kind of think about, you know, using the revenues of that they want to give to do the work that I want. Cause I'm always writing grants. I'm always trying to like fundraise. And if I can get, you know, if someone to support me, um, you know, like from the beginning, then I, it gives me more time to do the work versus then the other work that I don't want to do. So I think that those kinds of collaborations are, are super important um, in terms of like, you know, getting the work done. And I, and I say that in a, in, a, in, a, in a political way that, you know, the work is never done, you know, so um, I could spend like, you know, 10 hours writing a grant, but if I didn't have to write that grant and someone supported me financially, then I can, I have 10 more hours to kind of create space for civil rights and social political thinking and thought. Are there partners out there that you would not partner with? Is there styles of, of, of you know, I guess, types of art that you wouldn't associate yourself with? I never position myself to be like one type of artist. Like I'm always thinking about um, art as, um, as, 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 a, as, a, as a, my material is like, is ideas. And so how it manifests doesn't necessarily have to be in one way. Yes, for a lot of it, it's movement and dance and sculpture and film. But like, for example, I'm doing a piece right now with um, Danish National Radio, and I'm collaborating with a composer and uh, 18 singers, and we're making a new sound piece. And, you know, like, that's something that I'm like, I've never done before, you know, but I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm excited to put myself into that space, because I think within my practice, there's always space to grow and develop, like, I'm never going to be static, I always want to kind of like, keep moving, keep changing, um, being many different things. And I think that's within the identity of queer, you know, like I don't identify as being one thing. I'm many things, you know, because I'm always asked, like, are you Kenyan or are you Indian? Or are you Canadian? Which one are you more? And I'm like, I'm all of them. And tomorrow I'll be something else, you know? And I think that that's something that I kind of do as well with my, my practice and my materials. Like, so now I'm making the sound score, you know, it's totally different. You know, I know how to make a dance. Um, that's comfortable for me. I know what to do. But also within, um, you know, like an NFT, like I had, I was reading about it, I was doing the research about it, but I didn't know what, what it was going to be. And so I made it, it was, it was complicated. Um, but now when I do it the next time, I just had that much more information to be more, to make it happen faster, easier, and more successful, whatever that means. I think, I mean, I think it's fascinating. I mean, you, you, your, your, your mediums are just so varied and so different. And the fact that you, you know, you'll literally tackle any, any subject and, and, and on any medium in itself is, is so creative and different and unique. I know you're a big fashion guy too. You love your fashion. You love your design. You, you anyway, describe you yourself as a punk, punk rock ballerina. Uh, you know, that, that in itself is a, you know, it could be a fashion runway moment. Um, but what is it about the, the, your, your love of fashion that, 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 that's special for you? Is it just the, the ability to, I guess, express yourself through clothing and, and, and what have you? Yeah, um, and I think for me, that also stems from like family. You know, my grandmother, my mom's um, mother would always make our clothes, you know, and she, we, we didn't have a ton of money in Kenya, but she was like, if you dress well, you know, you kind of take on this persona, you know? And so we, dressing was always a way to kind of present ourselves, whether it was like going to church or going to like a family gathering or something, we always had to dress up. And um, I think I took that along, or, you know, my sister still, or my mom, everyone, you know, you have to dress up. And I think also one another influence of, of fashion for me was going to an all boys school and wearing my uniform because I didn't want to wear the uniform, but I had to, so I needed to make it my own. And so within that, I would kind of like alter it a little bit, you know, like change it a little bit, make it something more unique that was me. And so clothing for me, then also the dancer, you know, when you put on the clothes, you take on a character. You get to like be like make-believe or like have a different persona. So wearing clothes for me kind of is an extension of, of performance. It's an extension of, of, of being someone or somebody else or, you know, so it's exciting for me to do that. And so I've, I've, I've loved that. I wrote an essay recently for the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt in uh, New York. They did a show on 
Willie Smith, one of the first, you know, African-American queer um, um, designers that brought um, streetwear to Paris runways in, in, in Paris. And so I was just was like, you know, and I, I just love that he created this idea for a community to feel empowered. So clothing can also create this, this sense of like empowerment, you know? So like, yeah, I, I think that's why I love clothes. You know, it's, it's, it's super, it's, it's, it's an extension for me of, of being. I, I, I once said, um, you know, every day we wake up, we make a fashion statement, whether we like it or not. Uh, because to your point, clothes make us feel a certain way. We, we put on, you know, overalls and big boots. We're out, we're, we're out there ready to work. We put on a blue navy suit with a tie and you mean all business. You put a tuxedo on and you're ready to party, right? Or you've got, you know, or, you know whatever it might be. If you shave your head and you, you put on certain clothing with studs, you're like, okay, people are going to be intimidated by me because I'm a punk or I'm skinhead or I'm or whatever. It's like, it's incredible how it can change the way you feel just by the way you dress, you know, and how people react to you, right? Totally. And I think, you know, as a dancer, every time I put on a, a costume, I took on that role, you know, I performed what that, what that costume was asking me to do, you know, and I think that it's also part like within performing on stage, um, costumes made me feel like a different person. You know, I always, you know, it's what Beyonce was when she was on stage, she's, she's Sasha, Sasha Fierce, she becomes a different person, you know? And I think that's all just the kind of the, the play um, or the excitement of like of being on stage or performing that you can take on other personas. I love it, I love it. Brendan, before we let you go, and you've been very generous with your time, we have one more thing, it's called Last Orders. It's a little rapid fire question moment, oh um, uh, which is super easy, super fun. But if you could drink any cocktail from any movie or television show with a character from that show, what would it be and who would it be with? Okay, um, I would say, um, and this is going against my love for tequila, I would definitely say uh, an extra dry um, vodka martini, and I don't, all the gin drinkers are gonna kill me, uh, with a, extra dry with a twist, bone dry. Um, and I would say with, with Regina George from Mean Girls or Amy Poehler, the, the cool mom. I love that you know your cocktail, but you're not sure who you want to have it with. Which person? You've got you designed your cocktail already. A solitary creature. <laughs> I'd like to have it with myself, and um, <laughs> in my own movie of my own life. Um, amazing. Um, on that note, who would you like to have play you in the movie of your life? Oh wow! Okay, Rihanna. Of course. Of course, Rihanna, totally. <laughs> I mean, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> She's gonna look good with a beard. <laughs> um, yes, you could tell her that. <laughs> Fantasy dinner party, you can have three guests, dead or alive, and I can't be one of them. Okay, I would say Beyonce, Karl Marx came to my head. And I would say um, uh, Brishnikov. Karl Marx. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta make it a social political you just, statement. You just wanna get into communism with Beyonce at the table. I love it. <laughs> so unusual. Um, when, when, you, when you have a drink, when you open a drink, you know, pour yourself a cocktail, make yourself a cocktail, is there any particular music you like to put on? Um, being in Chicago, we need to have some like some nice house music, you know, um, to kind of get the party started. Do you have any particular band that you like or any particular group? Uh, well, Frankie Knuckles is an important figure in the Chicago house scene, so definitely some Frankie Knuckles. Frankie Knuckles with a bone dry martini. My God, <laughs> I, 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 it's all looking a little, sounding a little strange. And then final <laughs> question, Brendan. Have you met um, me before? I'm a strange creature. <laughs> you are a strange creature. Shaken or stirred? Shaken. Brendan Fernandez, everybody. You can catch him www.brendanfernandez.ca. That's for Canada. You can also check out the couple of pieces we mentioned right now at 21C Chicago. It's open to the public. It's pop stars. Uh, he's got some fabulous pieces there. But have a look at his work. Um, go to his website and check it all out. It's amazing. And when do we know when your next exhibition is going to be and when your next piece is available for the public? 
Um, so I'm doing the show right now, currently up at the Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts. It's up for the next year. It's called Choreo Politics, but I'll be doing a performance of Free Fall 49 on August 18th. There you go. You heard it right here. Cheers, everybody. Thank you for listening to Shaken and Stirred. Follow us on Instagram at Shaken and Stirred. And we look forward to shaking and stirring it with you again very, very soon. All the best. Cheers, everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. This podcast was produced and edited by Embassy Road. 